The following presentation is from North Pine Baptist Church. We trust that it will help you learn more about God and His message for the world. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au. to see you this morning. It's good also that we can open the Word of God uh, together. Uh, Amora started by talking about rest, something that's related to rest, but the opposite. Let me ask a question. How do you deal with guilt? Guilt keeps us from rest, doesn't it? Whether it be you've broken a window or you've broken a law, or you've broken a promise. How do you deal with that heavy feeling of guilt? Maybe you've tried explaining it away. You worked out how, I oh, look, I didn't really do something wrong. It wasn't that bad. Maybe that gives you a sense of feeling better. Maybe you've tried other methods. Maybe you've tried compensating it away. Try to work hard, you try to pay for something so that your, your guilt can be taken from you. Maybe you've tried something else. You've tried eating or drinking it away. You've tried to cover the feeling of guilt with something that will give you a different feeling. Maybe you've tried ignoring it away. Imagine it's not even there. Suppress it. And hopefully it stops dragging you down. Whatever technique you've tried, how's it worked? How effective has it been for you? Has it gotten rid of that feeling of guilt? Well, if you open your Bibles, please, to Psalm 130. Today we're going to consider a different approach. A different way of dealing with guilt, or more importantly, dealing with the cause of guilt, which is sin. You might notice as you open to to Psalm 130 that there is a title there that says, A Song of Ascents. Song of Ascents. The Ascents Psalms are a collection of Psalms that were were recited and, and prayed by the Israelites, as they were on a pilgrimage to, to Jerusalem, or spe- specifically as they ascended the stairs to the temple in Jerusalem. Psalm 130 comes towards the, the end of that collection. So it's likely that as the Israelites, as the pilgrims are reciting the words of Psalm 130, they're about to enter into the inner courtyard of the temple. And as they step into that courtyard, they would notice that it is a place that is dominated by a large bronze altar. An altar that is always burning. There's always splattered with blood of sacrificial animals. Animals that have been sacrificed for the sin of the Israelite people. It's an area that's constructed that should encourage those who are standing there to confess their sin before God before they take any more steps to 
towards a closer relationship, towards his presence even deeper. This psalm is a psalm that is on the lips of God's people as they are entering into this scenario. With that in mind, let me read Psalm 130 this morning. This is the word of the Lord for us today. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Heavenly Father, thank you for the word you have given to us this morning. Uh, We ask that you would open our hearts and speak to us through it. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. The words there, out of the depths, is a picture of deep waters. A place that is not the natural environment for a human being. And and I realised that myself when I was about... 10 to 12 years of age. We're on our high schoolers camp. Mum and dad ran these high schoolers camps through the January period. And uh, I was too young to attend, but I was able to go along anyway and have some fun. And we just finished playing a game called Scum Attack. It, as the name implies, it wasn't a clean game. Whatever porridge was cooked at the start of the week was kept for the game at the end of the week. So you get the picture there, whatever old food they had on hand was used in this game. And so when you played it, you got real dirty, real mucky. And we're there at Talabudra Beach. We've just finished playing and the leaders are right. The end of the water, let's get washed off before we head back to camp. And, and so I was with them. I leg it down to the water. And I was just playing in the in the shallow area there, just body surfing along, allowing the water to sort of, Rinse me off, so to speak. But see, there came a time where that just wasn't enough for me. I looked out and I saw some of the older teenagers out there in the deeper water and I went, that looks like fun. I want to go there. So I turned around, started heading out, dived under the, the first wave, came up the other side, dove under the second wave, up the other side, dove under the third wave and then realized that there was nothing beneath my feet. I was out of my depth, and I knew it. A sense of panic set in. Luckily, the messages from Life Saving and that get through. And so what did I do when I was at the beach, out of my depth? Shut up my hand as high as I could put it, this little 10, 11-year-old arm up there, and I started yelling for help. Come save me, help. Here I am. Bit of a, um, bit of a 
Wait a record for you in case you, you, you're wondering. Yes, I did get rescued. <laughs> Help did come my way. I was saved, took back to shore. When you consider sin, sin in your life, is that something where you think that you are out of your depth? You feel like you are out of your depth and in desperate need of saving, just like that drowning little boy was. Or is it different for you? Do you feel like you're just playing in the shallows? That in playing in the shallows, that you've got it under control. It's a bit of fun. Nothing to worry about. If you're unsure which of these two scenarios might fit with you, maybe guilt is a telltale sign as to which category you fall in. Maybe you don't really feel guilt. So maybe then you think you are, you are just playing in the shallows. You've got it under control. Or maybe guilt comes heavy on you and you know that you're out of your depth. The opening verses of our text show us that the person praying this psalm, the psalmist feels like they are totally out of their depth. They're acutely aware of their situation when it comes to their sin before God. They say, out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. You get the sense of desperation about this cry. As with the drowning swimmer, the psalmist knows. They're acknowledging that they're beyond their limits to endure. They can't escape on their own. They're out of their depth, which is a, a, a common term. Common theme in the Psalms. The Psalmists will often find themselves oppressed by persecution or, or, or evildoers, people coming against them, or they'll find themselves out of their depth when it comes to war or sickness or sin, and they cry out to God for rescue from what is oppressing them. Psalm 69 starts off this way. It says, save me, O God. For the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in the miry depths where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters. The floods engulf me. Do you get the feeling? It is taking me down. I'm helpless. One of the first things we might notice about this psalm and about the the writer, the psalmist, is that they have made a humble assessment of themselves. In their situation. They know that they're in the depths. They know that they need to cry out to someone else to save them. But for rescue to be possible, a rescuer must be able to hear their cry for help and both be willing and able to rescue them. Seems obvious, doesn't it? But what good is a cry for help if there's no one there to hear it? Be like a young baby. What good is their cry for help if a parent isn't within earshot? Cry for help is useless unless help is available. 
Notice that the psalmist also has a confidence that their cry for help will be heard. And we see this confidence by digging into verse 2 a little bit more. hope that colour has come up for you. It says, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. These These are significant words when we consider Solomon in 2 Chronicles 7 where he dedicates the temple to the Lord. And the Lord himself says these words in verses 13 to 15 in 2 Chronicles 7. The Lord says, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command locusts to devour the land, or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven. And I will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. So the wording of this psalm is deliberate. Maybe the psalmist has this dedication of the temple in mind as they pen it. It's a prayer that is commonly offered by Israelites as they enter into the temple. The Israelites, God's people, those called by his name. And the psalmist comes, the psalmist's confidence comes from knowing who they are crying to. Notice who they are addressing. They're addressing the Lord. It's a word that comes out eight times. In this psalm, it's almost hard to read that it sort of interrupts so often. Of those eight times, five times is a reference to God's covenant name, Yahweh. Three times is to call him Master, Lord. When God's people think of God's covenant name, they must also consider his character who God has revealed himself to be, declared himself to be what he has declared his character to be. Because that is how he is known. That's how he introduced himself to his people in Exodus 34 when he says to Moses, says, the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, that is Moses, and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord. The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. God comes down and introduces himself to Moses and his people and says, you'll know me by my name, which means I am compassionate, I'm gracious, gracious. Slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Who am I, Moses? I maintain love. I'm the God who forgives. 
when you know God's character, who he has declared himself to be, then you know that he is the one you need to call on when you are out of your depth in sin. Verses 3 to 4 show the psalmist is talking about being out of his depth in regard to sin. He says straight up, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. The writer is saying, God, if you watched for us to make a mistake, to slip up, so that you you could punish us for getting it wrong? Well, if there'd be no one left standing, we'd all be wiped out because we all sin. But the psalmist cries out to God for mercy because God's character consists of both his judgment of sin and his mercy. And understanding this, rightly leads us to fear God, as the ESV makes clear in its translation of verse 4. It says that God might be feared. The fear of God could be understood as living in such a way that exhibits a right view of who God is and therefore a right view of who we are. Let me say that again. The fear of God could be understood as living in such a way that exhibits a right view of who God is and a right view of who we are. It's a way of life. It calls us to confess our sins and it calls us to, as the NIV is trying to get get out, to serve with reverence for God. We should fear him. See, God will punish sin. But he's not looking for us to make a mistake so that he can punish us. God does not deal with people by keeping a track of their sins and their shortcomings. God is looking to forgive the repentant person so that by forgiving them, they may live in relationship with him and enjoy the goodness of who he is. So we can notice that this relationship is totally dependent on God. It's totally dependent on his forgiveness of sin, of his grace towards his people. At that same time in 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon is dedicating the temple to God, he prays to God. In that prayer, he basically says, God, we're going to stuff up. And when we stuff up, you're going to have to forgive us or this relationship is not going to work. We're totally dependent on you, God. And the psalmist, therefore, is is confident that not only then will God hear his cry for help, but also that God is willing and able to forgive him, to rescue him from his sin. That's because God has shown himself to do that in the past. When Egypt cry out to, when Israel cry out to God in Egypt, 
What does he do? He hears their cry and he rescues them, brings them out of the land of slavery. Through the period of the judges when Israel are oppressed and they cry out to God, what does he do? He hears their cry and he saves them. He sends a judge to free them from their oppression. God has shown himself in the past to be a God who is hearing of his people's cry, willing and able to save them. God is who he says he is. He forgives and saves his people. And is that forgiveness of God that enables relationship with him? What this then develops in the heart of a humble, repentant person is an attitude of trust in God's word. See, though the psalmist wouldn't know exactly how salvation will come, when forgiveness and in what mode might come, psalmist takes God at his word. He trusts God and believes in God that he will come and forgive and save his people. Look at verses 5 and 6. It says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. God's word, as it's mentioned there, can be understood as God's truth in whatever form it takes. The truth about God's character, who he has declared himself to be. The truth about God's promises, what he has said he will do. And the truth about God's commands, what he says we should do, how we should live. This trust in God's word leads to a desire, desire to patiently wait for God to reveal himself, to reveal his salvation. It repeats the reference to watchmen then. Watchmen are people who are up all night. And as I say those words, no doubt I've grabbed the attention of all of the, the shift workers and all of the uni students and all of the new parents of newborns who are in the room. Ah, oh, that's me. I'm up all night at the moment. Well, I've been all of those things different times. And when I read these words, my mind went back to the time when I worked some night shift. My wait for the morning was a couple of things. First thing, it was a wait for something that was certain. After evening comes morning. The morning always came, no matter how long the night felt. Not only is the coming of morning a certainty for the watchman, but it's also something that brings relief and joy. The watchmen, the shift workers, look forward to morning with joy because morning brings relief. It brings handover. No matter what's been going on for you, no matter how that machine has been playing up, when you get to the morning and the, the next shift comes in, you can say, it is your problem now. I'm done. 
The watchmen then get a sense of rest, don't they? The psalmist is looking forward to handover, for a different sort of handover. For the sinner, the handover is the handover of sin and and guilt that that sin brings to our lives. The Lord's coming means that handover in the form of forgiveness of sin will bring relief from that guilt because we'll take that sin and someone else takes it off us. But notice the verses 5 to 8 say that forgiveness or salvation is something that God brings personally. He doesn't do it remotely. He doesn't just send someone else to sort it out. He doesn't send a technician to come and sort out the problem. He comes himself. And that is because God is salvation. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Salvation for the writer of this psalm is God himself. So then all Israel is urged to put their hope in the Lord. Forget trying to deal with your sin and your guilt in some other way. Hope in the Lord. He is salvation. Those who trust in God will experience the love of redemption through him. And this redemption that he gives is more than just a life jacket for the swimmer out of their depth. It's being winched to safety and having their feet set on dry ground. It's more than just an asthma puffer for the asthmatic. It's a new set of lungs. It is life. New eyes. A new mind. A new heart. New motivations. New desires. New allegiances. It is new life. Life with God himself. If we're going to allow the words of Psalm 113 to speak to us this morning, we need to start with our hearts being humble. There's a real danger of misreading our situation. When it comes to sin, we can easily mislead where we're at, misunderstand where we're at. It might be that we trust in our own efforts when it comes to our sin and guilt. Maybe there's something in our minds we think we can save ourselves. Well, like the the person who's drowning think, no, it is all right, actually, I can swim myself to land. Or maybe it's all right, I'll I'll just float here until it all works out in the end. We can easily misread our situation and think that we can save ourselves, friends. Friends, that kind of thinking ends in us drowning 
Likewise, we can misread our situation by thinking that we're just playing safely in the shallows when it comes to sin. Maybe you just don't think that you're out of your depth or that sin isn't too much of a problem for you. It's hard to be humble if we think that we're in the shallows when it comes to sin. In one way, actually, this whole beach illustration is flawed. And the flaw is the existence of the shallows. If we understand sin to be like the slope of a beach where you can slowly, gradually get deeper and deeper, then we will no doubt see the shallows as a legitimate place to play. A place where we can feel strong and in control. A place where we can put our shoulder to the approaching wave of temptation and sin, set our feet and just come up the other side, allow the consequences to just wash over us and we're fine, no harm done. We might even think that it's fun to be swept off our feet every now and then, to have a bit of a play. Is that your understanding of sin? Do you see it as something that's a fun place to play? Something where your your feet are set, you've got it under control. Are you playing in the shallows, friends? Feeling like you can resist temptation and sin all on your own. My experience is that's rubbish. The wave will take you out to deep waters and you can't save yourself. It's a flawed understanding of our situation, friends. Self-help doesn't work when it comes to sin. Our efforts and ignorance will get us nowhere when it comes to dealing with our sinful state. Now, our sin puts us in the depths, a place where there is nothing underfoot and there's nowhere to go. We need to see sin for what it truly is. Depths that will drown us not shallows where we should play. We can't just walk out of sin whenever we choose it. We need saving. But if we are willing to have a humble view of ourselves in our sin problem, if we are willing to cry out to God as the one who can save us, friends, he will open our eyes to see that the morning has already come. That he himself, that salvation has already come in the person of Jesus. See, friends, Jesus is the word of God. He is the word that became flesh 
and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth, full of truth, God's truth. With Jesus, there is forgiveness. With Jesus, there is unfailing love. With Jesus, there is full redemption. See, the truth of God is brought together in Jesus. He is the perfect revelation of God's character, friends. He's the perfect fulfillment of God's promises. And Jesus displays absolute obedience to God's commands. Through Jesus, God personally comes to us and redeems us. Have you realized yet that you are out of your depth? Well, I urge you this morning, friends, cry out to Jesus. He will save you. Let me pray. Loving Lord and Heavenly Father, It is so good to to stand on this side of time. Lord, to be able to see that morning has already come. To see how this prayer of the psalmist, as they are entering into the place where forgiveness and relationship with God can be found, has been answered. The forgiveness has come that you yourself have saved. And that offer is something that is open to all of us today, Lord. As we have come up the steps into this place today, Lord, that once again we can come to a place where we can talk about an old rugged cross The place where forgiveness has been made possible because our Lord Jesus Christ has come and been that sacrifice on that wooden altar. His blood spilled, his life given so that our sins might be exchanged, might be handed over and we might receive forgiveness. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your truth, that you are who you say you are and that we can with confidence pray to you and bring our sin and our guilt to you, knowing that you hear our cry. But more than just hearing it, Lord, you are willing and able and have saved us. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here who this morning has realized that they are just trying to play in the shallows of sin. Lord, that your Holy Spirit will reveal the truth to them. Lord, that we're all out of our depth. We're all drowning. We all need to shoot up our hand and cry out to you for rescue. And Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in our hearts this morning.
cause us to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this presentation from North Pine Baptist Church. For more information and to connect with us, visit npbc.org.au.